morning's reading is Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Neil. It's lovely to be with all of you this morning. Um, since we, uh, since I was last here on a Sunday, um, I had a short trip to Aintree Hospital. I had a delightful 24 hours um, with a kidney stone. Has anyone else had a kidney stone? Yeah. I hear a kidney stone is as bad as childbirth, but I'm not bringing it up. I'm not making a big deal out of it. I'm not telling lots of people. I was very, very brave. I cried, I threw up, and I screamed for pain relief. I am, I'm not very brave, it turns out, Lou. I'm not very brave, but if you've given birth, I now know what that feels like. <laughs> so rest assured, I know it's bad, but it passes. So not yet, but it will, it will pass. That was good, that was a little double, little pun, nice. This, um, this morning we are keeping on thinking about Easter week. Um, this morning, I'm meant to be talking about what the gospel is, part two, um, but I decided that we would change the plan slightly. So next week, James Hutch is going to carry on with the sermon series, as you would expect, and he's going to talk about Jesus's last words on the cross. Today, we're going to go forward a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about Easter Saturday. Time is an abstract concept. There are more people here now than there were at the start of the service, so some of you also live your lives like that as well. Um, so hopefully you can live with the kind of back and forth of that. But this morning, we're going to talk about Holy Saturday and the harrowing of hell. There we go. Warning, I am long and hell comes at the end. So <laughs> bear with me as we get there this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us today, and that as we've already sung, you're the one that rescues, you're the one that saves, you're the one that brings us and shows us grace. And so this morning, Jesus, we ask for your grace to be made known. In your name we pray. Amen. A Danish art gallery contacted a man called Jens Hanning, who is a semi-famous Danish artist, and they asked him to reproduce a piece of art. The art that they asked him to reproduce was one that he'd made almost a decade earlier when he'd taken the average annual income of a Danish person and glued it to a canvas. And it was a statement on the value of work. And they, the gallery contacted Jens Hanning and they said, we want you to recreate that for 2021. So they sent him $83,000 in the post 
and said, make us two canvases with the average annual earnings of a person living in Denmark. And they said, for your time and for your trouble, here's $1,600 as a payment for the piece of art. The gallery realized that something had gone wrong when they called him and they said, what's the title for this piece of work? And he said, it's called Take the Money and Run. Pretty good, isn't it? They realized it had gone really wrong when they unwrapped the canvases to much fanfare with the director of the art gallery and the creators of the exhibit, and the canvases were, of course, entirely blank. This is a picture of that blank canvas. You are now viewing an almost priceless work of art. Obviously, they were very annoyed at him that he'd seemingly broken the contract, the agreement between the two of them. Uh, and when he was asked why he did it, he said, well, I'm, I'm making a statement on how people are undervalued and underpaid for the work that they do. And my hope is that people will hear of this and they will do what it takes to get what their work deserves. The New York Times interviewed him and they said, why don't you give the money back? And this is great, I thought this was class. He said, if I give the money back, they'll just be blank canvases and not be art anymore. <laughs> so, by a show of hands, who considers this to be art? If you think it's art, put your hands up. Some lefties are banging their hands up all over the room, this is good. Have <laughs> you gave it two half hands. Is that one whole hand or two half? You wanna talk more about it? Well, we've not got time this morning. I, um, I, think this is, I think this is art. I think it's art because art provokes and it creates questions and conversations. So you might think he's just a petty criminal. He's nicked $86,000 or whatever it is. You might think he's making a fascinating point and you, you, know, you think work is undervalued and art matters and so this, this counts, this is legitimate. Art inspires and provokes. I like this piece of art because on its surface, it's a blank canvas, isn't it? The blank canvas has no meaning. I agree, if he gives the money back, it's just a blank canvas. If he keeps it, it's a blank canvas with a provocative story that raises questions for us and inspires conversations. I think it's the thing that's happening off the page, off the canvas, that gives this meaning and so makes it art and makes him a lot richer. I'm bringing that up this morning because I think that good theology, good engagement with who God is and with the Bible should inspire questions. It should provoke you and mean that you agree and disagree at different points. We're going to talk this morning about Holy Saturday, about the day in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And the things that we talk about this morning, you won't agree with all of them. You will, in fact, you might well disagree with everything that I say this morning, and that will be fine. Feel free to email me, but just let me know in the subject heading so I don't read it. <laughs> it's provocative and it's engaging. It's meant to create a response in what we think and what we believe. I don't agree with everything that I'm going to say this morning, but that's not really the point of engaging with a deepening understanding of who God is, is it? We wrestle and we learn and we engage together. And the story of our passage this morning is of a blank canvas 
and the things that create the interest and the controversy and the conversations for you and me this morning all happen off the edge of it. We hear um, in Matthew uh, this morning as Neil read that Jesus' body has been taken down from the cross and he's been laid in the tomb. On Easter Saturday, the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees, they go to Pilate and they insist that Pilate gives them a Roman guard. They had temple guards they could have used to guard the tomb of Jesus, but their temple guards aren't as well trained Their weapons aren't as good, they're not as well equipped, and so they want a Roman guard by the tomb. Pilate, after a bit of conversation, relents, and he says, you get to have your Roman guard. A question that we're going to talk about and think about this morning is, where did Jesus go on Easter Saturday, and what did he do? And Matthew's surface-level response for you and me this morning is, he went nowhere, and he did nothing. He wants you to know that Jesus was not kidnapped. Nobody took Jesus' body. The resurrection of Jesus isn't a sham. It's not that Jesus' followers found him and hid him or paraded him around. He was dead. His body was in the tomb. End of conversation. But Matthew does open a can of worms for us by agreeing that Jesus was dead. Because where do you go when you're dead. Where do you go when you're dead? Where did Jesus go when he was dead? And what did he do on Easter Saturday? For us to unpack that and unpick that a little bit more, we have to go right back to the start of the Bible, to the Old Testament, and work our way through. Because there's a pattern that's weaved throughout all of the Bible that's going to help us understand what Jesus was doing on Easter Saturday. And it's a pattern that happens over three days, time and time again throughout the scriptures. If you go to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is the creation story. Um, Is Mary here? Oh, she's at the back, lying on the floor. Why are you on the floor, Mary? For comfort. So not very comfortable. All right, never mind. Um, the The first creation week. Mary, how many days was the first, how many days was creation? Six. She got it right at the nine o'clock. I thought she was pretty brilliant. I didn't expect anyone to get it. Creation happens in six days because on the seventh day, God rests, right? So God creates over six days. Now, theologians, people who know lots about the Bible, divide that week into two sections. So into two blocks of three days. On the, thir- on the first third day, it'll get simpler as we go along. On the first third day, God creates plants. Out of the hardness of the earth, plants spring up. On the second third day, so the sixth day, what does God make? Man and and woman. Man and woman. And he also makes animals. And on the, so on the second third, on the sixth day, he makes people and he enters into a covenant with them. He makes a promise. He says, you will steward the earth be fruitful and multiply. On the third day, God brings new life and he enters into covenant. He makes a promise to people. You see that pattern throughout the scriptures. So Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. Um, God speaks to Abraham on day one. And what does it say to Abraham? Does anyone know? Something about his son? We'll work on this. 
We'll end the Bible as we go. It's fine. Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abacrophites, it's a shocking interaction, isn't it? Really appalling. God says, I want you to offer your son as a living sacrifice. Day two, Abraham prepares. He cuts wood. He gets ready to offer the sacrifice. Day three, they go for a walk, climb up a mountain. And as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, God provides an alternative. He provides a ram. And then, at that moment, he enters into a covenant with Abraham. He says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and grains of sand on the earth, and all nations will be blessed through your descendants. It's a foundational covenant. Day one, God speaks. Day two, there's preparation. Day three, there's covenant and new life. Moses led the Egyptians, led the Israelites out of Egypt. They get to the foot of the Sinai, and God says, I'm going to appear to you at the top of the mountain. Day one, God speaks. Day two, we're told that the Israelites consecrate themselves to God. They get ready. They prepare. Day three, Moses, uh, God shakes the mountain. There's a cloud at the top. It sounds like it's a volcano, but Mount Sinai isn't volcanic. Moses goes up the mountain. God gives him, what does God give Moses at the top of the top of the mountain? Ten Commandments. God enters into a new covenant. He gives them new life, a new way of living. Jonah. Jonah disobeys God. He legs it, doesn't he? He legs it. He goes onto a boat. What happens when he's on the boat? A storm. A storm happens. They try and work out who sinned, who caused the storm. Turned out it was Jonah. They throw Jonah overboard. Jonah's swallowed by a fish, a big fish, on day one. On day two, he prays in the belly of the fish. Day three, what happens? He gets spat out onto the sand. Now, when Jonah tells the story later on, he doesn't say, interestingly, he was in the belly of a whale. He says he was in Sheol, which is the place of the dead. People draw lots of comparisons between Jonah in the belly of the whale and Jesus dying on a cross and coming back resurrection life. You could do this all the way through the Old Testament. Day one, God acts. Day two, there's preparation. And day three, there is new life, resurrection, and a new promise, a covenant that God makes with his people. That matters because so often in our church tradition, we just skip over day two, don't we? We skip Easter Saturday. On Easter Saturday, we have a family fun day. <laughs> and we have bouncy castles. And if you turn up early enough, you might get some food. And that's good. I have no real qualms with that. But we need to miss the thing that God does on day two, which is preparation. So what does Jesus do on day two? What's he preparing? Where's he going? What's he doing? Well, right from the earliest, earliest beginnings of the church, we've been pretty united in where Jesus went. It's in the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest statements of faith. We say that Jesus descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. If you read um, Revelation chapter 1, it gives us a bit more information. It says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I am dead. And look now, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hades is an interesting word, isn't it? We don't talk about Hades very often. I don't know about you, but I'd assumed it was a Greek word that kind of got 
wiped out a while ago. But, but Jesus uses the word Hades too. He knew what it meant. Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, that you are the rock and I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades is different to hell. Hades is similar to the Jewish word, which is that it's just the place of the dead. So throughout the Old Testament, there's not really a clear concept of hell as you or me might hold it in 2021. That doesn't really appear. And so Jesus is saying to Peter that the gates of the undead, the place that the dead are, that won't be able to stand against you. We hear that Jesus has the keys to the place of the dead. Not necessarily to heaven or to hell, but the place of the dead. As I said in the Apostles' Creed, we say Jesus descended to the dead, not to heaven or hell, but to the place where the dead are. That might be a new thought for you. Jesus talks in slightly clearer terms about hell. He talks about a place called Gehenna, Uh, a place that's a a valley outside of Jerusalem that was uh, defiled under King Josiah and where there were continually burning fires. And he talks about heaven, about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But in the Old Testament, that's not really a clear idea. It's very hard to read the Old Testament and to believe that. And even some Jews today don't believe in an afterlife. They just believe that when you're dead, you go to the place of the undead and that's that. That's where you stay. Jesus is talking about Hades, the place of the dead. And so, what does Jesus do when he goes down into Hades, into the place of the dead? Well, um, 1 Peter 4 to 6 says, um, For this is the reason that the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Do you hear that? This is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Peter, this isn't new for Peter. He's already said it in 3.18. He says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, made alive by the spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. There is, you can interpret those passages and parts of the New Testament as saying that on Easter Saturday, Jesus descended to the place of the dead and he preached the good news. He preached the gospel. Sometimes if you look at pictures of Jesus descending into the dead, he's got a scroll in his hands and that scroll is him declaring the good news. It's not only found in Peter. Paul writes about it. Paul says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul in Ephesians 4 is saying, Jesus descended and he ascended. And as he went down, he did something in the down that meant some people came up. He led some captives out with him. So what does he do while he's there and who is he doing it to? That's very difficult to tell. 
It's really difficult to tell, but it's really important. If Jesus descended into Hades and shared the good news, the gospel, with everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous, the Jews and the Gentiles, and all have been given the chance and the option, you might believe one thing about what happens at the end of the earth. You might think that everyone at the end of time will get given that option and that privilege where Jesus will appear and he will explain and you get to decide. You can interpret it like that. You could also say, nah, not a chance, mate. Jesus only spoke to the Jewish community while he was down there and he took them with him. You can interpret it like that too. Sometimes the Bible isn't quite as clear as you and me would like it to be. Some of this might be new for you. It's only new for us because we were born in the wrong place. If you were born in Greece or in Russia or in parts of Turkey and you were part of the Eastern Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox, this is core stuff. This is basic Sunday school material. On, um, on Easter Sunday, our kind of symbol for it is the empty tomb, isn't it? He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's not that. It's this. It's this story, the harrowing of hell. And what they do on Easter Sunday to celebrate it is uh, everyone comes in, like you've done this morning, and then the priest goes out and he gets locked, always a him, he gets locked out of the building. And he, he bangs on the door and he says, behold, let the king of glory come in. In this story, you can tell he wrote the script, the priest is Jesus and you're about to become the undead. The priest bangs on the door and Julia eventually lets him in and he walks in down the aisle and you're all sitting there with tambourines and with chains and probably car keys and you jangle them and the idea is that as the priest walks in down through the aisle, you make the noise of the undead putting up a good fight. But Jesus always wins, doesn't he? And so as the priest walks in through the aisle, you're increasingly vanquished, the lights are turned on, there's incense and declarations and acclamations that Jesus is alive, he's risen, and that he has the keys to death and Hades. This theology is called Christus Victor, Christ the victorious. He has won. He has done it. It's finished. The harrowing of hell is at the center of that. Jesus is coming and he's taking the keys. He's won. He's done it. He's delivering the undead. Can I get a picture on the screen for me? There's, um, in uh, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they talk their theology, but they also paint it. Um, this is an icon. It's a, a picture of Jesus, a painting of Jesus, going down into Hades. Now, um, it's worth saying it's not a photograph, so they're not necessarily saying this is exactly how it happened. But within this picture, there is lots and lots of theology, lots of their understanding with God. And you might agree with it, and you might disagree with it, but they've painted it. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about this because it's really interesting for us this morning. So uh, in the middle, who can tell me who's in the middle? Jesus. Why is Jesus in the middle? Because he's in the middle of everything. Jesus is always at the center, and he's in the middle of this picture. If you look, he's got his flowing robes behind him, and they are flowing because the idea is he's just stormed the gates of hell, and you don't do it slowly. You get on with it. He is, um, I'm not joking, that's real. Uh, he's standing on a bit of wood, and he's got two long kind of buttresses lining out. They are the gates. He's standing on the gates of Hades. 
He has well and truly won. He has well and truly done it. There is no discussion. But um, you can't see because the, the lighting makes it hard. But um, there's Jesus is standing over a kind of pool of blue. Can you see what the white things are? No? I'll tell you then. The white things are it's a collection of bones. And it's also a collection of padlocks and keys. Because Jesus has the keys. He's unlocked it. He's got the keys to death and Hades. Right in the middle at the bottom there's a, a black figure. You might just be able to make it out. That is the devil, bound and chained. Now, that's problematic for us standing here because you might notice all of the good people are white and the devil is black. If you look even closer, you can see that they've given the devil an afro. This picture is really problematic for us in its racial and racist undertones, message, overtones. It's unacceptable, those images and that message, but nonetheless, it's a part of this picture. Jesus is um, grabbing two people by the hand. Can you see? There's one, a lady in red, and a really old man in a white robe. Does anyone, this is a tricky one, has anyone got any idea who these people are? Someone have a guess. Go on. Elijah. That would be good. Elijah should be in the picture. He's not. He's Abraham. Nah, got to go further back. Further back. No, Adam. Adam, and therefore she is? Eve. Lovely. He is grabbing Adam and Eve by the hands. This is my, my favourite bit of the whole picture. Jesus is grabbing Adam and Eve by the wrists, and he's going to pull them out of Hades. Now, this is why it's art. It's art because they represent the very beginning of humanity, don't they? They represent the start of everything. And so Jesus storms the gates of hell and he reaches back right into the very beginning of humanity and he pulls them out and he redeems all things and takes them with him. He grabs them and he takes them with him. Now, again, you can interpret this in different ways. You can say, well, everyone in this picture is a Jew. And so therefore, all he's doing is he's grabbing and he's redeeming all of the Jewish community. Or you can say, everyone is everyone. And so he's grabbing them and he's taking them with him. But I think it's a very beautiful image. There's uh, three people with halos, King David, King Solomon, and John the Baptist. And the people on Jesus' left, our right, you see the one with the shepherd's staff? Um, they are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know why they're in the picture. <laughs> If you know why they're in the picture, I mean, you probably should have let me know about 40 minutes ago. But, um, but they're in it. Sometimes, um, sometimes they're Cain and Abel. They seem to be a rotating cast of different patriarchs and important people. Well, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are being dragged out with them. Jesus' death and resurrection is a cosmic act. That means it's not just limited to one moment in time and one moment in space, but it's for all people in all places. He is redeeming all things across time. So whether you believe that everyone goes to heaven or not, we believe as Christians that Jesus is the means by which people get saved, that they are redeemed. And so Jesus reaches back and he is the way. He is the way to the Father. He's the way into the kingdom of God and God's presence. 
Some of this theology is problematic, isn't it? You might agree with bits of it. You might disagree with bits of it. Um, you can uh, read um, the words of Jesus. Jesus talks um, a bit more clearly. He says um, that the gate is narrow and that not everyone will find it. In Matthew 7, he says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 13 says, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The Bible can be complex. And it needs you and me to engage with it seriously and to ask serious questions of it and of each other as we come to understand it. I've said things this morning that I disagree with and some things that I agree with. I am a walking contradiction in some parts on this. And I would imagine if you look deep within yourselves, you'll find that you also have some contradictions in what you believe and in what you don't believe. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to enter into those conversations and those contradictions and wrestle and work out together what it is that we believe. Over the next few years, um, as, a, as the Church of England, we're going to have some difficult and some complicated conversations about what we believe. And there will be some of us who think the Bible says one thing and other who think that the Bible says another. And our ability to stay in relationship with each other in the midst of that agreement is going to be unbelievably important. And one of the ways that we can do that is we can recognize that you can understand the Bible to say different things and still be doing your best to be faithful to it. So easy, isn't it, for us just to bin off someone else's thought because we think they're not biblical and we're biblical, or for us to bin them off because we think they're a dinosaur and we'd rather not engage with it. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to enter into complexity, to start with scripture, to take that seriously, and then work from there together as a community that can live with diversity and disagreement. I would imagine there'll be lots of different views and lots of different opinions on this image, on a blank canvas, on what happens after we die, on whether Jesus preached to everyone in Hades and he gave them all a chance, whether he just preached to the Jews or he just preached to the unrighteous. I'm sure that you can find different ways of understanding and different ways of engaging it. But the thing that matters the most and the thing that we gather around as followers of Jesus is that Jesus reaches into your life and into mine with grace and kindness and love and mercy. That he's got a purpose for you. That he wants you to know how deeply loved you are and for you to worship him in response. I'm going to um, close by reading a bit um, from Rowan Williams who's writing about um, this, uh, this image. He says, as Christ's hand grasps the hands of Adam and Eve, Jesus goes back to embrace the first imaginable moment of rebellion and false direction in human life. We are reminded that he goes fully into the depths of human agony. He reaches back to and beyond where human memory begins. Adam and Eve stand for whatever it is in the human story that fear and refusal of God first began. 
Not a moment we can date in ordinary history any more than we can date in the history of each one of us where we began to forget God. But we are always dwelling with the after effects of that moment, both as a human race and as a particular person. This icon declares that whatever that, whatever that last lost moment is or was, Christ has been there to implant the possibility, never destroyed, of another turning, another future. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning that your grace never runs out on us. That you don't give up hope. That you don't abandon us or forsake us. And Jesus, we pray that we would know your grace and your love and your kindness this morning. Would you come and make yourself known? And as you do that, Jesus, would you give us grace for the complex conversations and questions that we're going to need to engage with in the years ahead? Jesus, we want to be faithful to you and faithful to the people that you've made us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.